Israel had been anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. Going all the way back to Isaiah 53, there was a, uh, an excitement that there was going to come a great deliverer, the root of Jesse or the root of David. And in John 1 and verse 41, Andrew, it says, he found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. John chapter 4, verse 25, when Jesus met the woman at the well, she says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. It didn't matter if you were a Jew like Andrew and Peter, or if you were even a Samaritan like the woman in Samaria, there was an anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. But with the Messiah would also come a kingdom, a glorious kingdom. And when Jesus arrived and John the Baptist was on the scene, their message was consistent and clear. It says, John preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 4 verse 17, then Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew 10, when he sent the disciples out on the limited commission, going into all the cities of the Jews, he said, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there's an anticipation of the Messiah. There's an anticipation of even the kingdom. In Mark 9 and verse 1, Jesus said, Surely I say to you that some of you standing here will not taste of death till you will see the kingdom of God come or present with power. It's something nearby, something to be anticipated. And there were godly people who were anticipating this coming with a great amount of excitement. One of the things I find always interesting is Mark's account in chapter 15 and verse 43. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. Here's a man who says, I'm looking for it, even as he is taking the process of burying the body of Jesus, he is also at the same time still looking for the kingdom. Not everyone understood the plan that God had. In Luke chapter 17, there were some who was asking when it would come. And he said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. It's going to be a kingdom that is not like other kingdoms, not like other nations. It's going to be a special one. There were those men who were chosen by the Lord to prepare for the arrival of the kingdom. These men were known as the apostles. And in Luke chapter 22, he tells his disciples as they are gathered together in that upper room celebrating that uh, Passover meal and, and instituting the Lord's Supper. He said, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you that I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then in verse 18, For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. There was this anticipation on the part of these apostles now. We know that it's close at hand, and it's going to take place when the Lord's Supper is celebrated. And that leads us to Mark, or excuse me, Acts chapter 1. And the apostles and those are assembled together with the Lord, and they're going to ask him the question, 
He said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. They're in Jerusalem now, but I don't want you to leave Jerusalem until you've been endued with power from on high. And they're anticipating it. They're waiting for it. And thus the apostles and the devout followers of the Lord were waiting together in the phrase, in one accord, for the Lord's promise of the coming of the Spirit. We read in verse 13, And when they had entered, and they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, these all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus with his brothers. And it says the number of the names is about 120. These people are gathered together. They're in one accord. They're in agreement. They're unified waiting for what the Lord has promised. And it arrived on the Pentecost following the Lord's resurrection from the dead. He had been crucified on Passover. Now it's here at Pentecost, 50 days later, and now they're waiting for this great coming. So that leads us to the beginning of the church, the start of it. And what I'm going to do as assigned in the lecture is going to deal, first of all, with the people and then to deal with the problems that arose from it. What you're going to see is the Lord's divine plan worked out through these people whom He's chosen, and you'll see the specialness of it. But then you recognize that anytime something good starts, Satan is on the sideline ready to do whatever he can to destroy it, and he's going to try. The people of the kingdom are special. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 19, he says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That is, those who are a part of the Lord's church are special. They're a part of his kingdom. That harkens back to Exodus 19 and verse 5. He says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me. That's what it takes to be a special treasure of the Lord, is to do what He says and to be His people. And He says, if you do that, I will bless you. We learn in Matthew 11 and verse 11 about how great John the Baptist was. And Jesus made this statement about him. He says, assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You see, there was something special about the Lord's kingdom, this church, so much so that even a great prophet like John the Baptist was inferior, lesser than those who are in his kingdom. Acts 2 records how they became a part of that kingdom, the church. In Acts 2, verse 14, Peter begins his sermon. He stands up with the eleven and he says, Men of Judea and you who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and heed my words. He's going to preach a sermon and he's going to talk about who Jesus is and how God raised him from the dead. And then he comes to verses 36 and following. 
Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What he is telling each of them to do is you are guilty of sin, and here's what you can do to be forgiven of your sins. And in verse 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. That's to the 120. What you observe here is then praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You see the sermon, you see the reaction, and you see people becoming a part of that wonderful kingdom. As you keep reading through the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 4, it says the number came to be about 5,000. Chapter 5, verse 14, multitudes, both of men and women. This reflects exactly what Daniel had prophesied about that great image that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed about and how that stone that struck the image on its feet became a great mountain And he says, it filled the whole earth. That's the church. That's the kingdom of God. And these people were to love and did love one another, forming an intense bond. You see, as we step back and we see God's plan, what you realize, these are real people. These are individuals. And they, because of the plan that God had, were to love one another and did love one another. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus had said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's the way you you recognize the disciples of the Lord. They love one another. And John also continued recording the prayer of Jesus in John 17, verses 20 and 21. I do not pray for these alone, that is the apostles, but also those who will believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, Father, as you are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. We listen to Peter writing in chapter 1 and verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, Love one another fervently with a pure heart. You obey the gospel, then what do you do? You love the brethren. You show your compassion and your concern for them. And John would write in 1 John 4 verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. In verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. When you think about the conversion of those early Christians, God had expressed love to each one of us. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then you and I as the recipients of that love, then in turn love one another like God has loved us. And now notice Acts 2, verses 44 through 47. This is where it all brings into a crescendo because he says, Now all who believed were together and had all things common 
and sold possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. There's some focus on unity in the beginning of the church. You see, the love there was more than just words. It took place in deeds. They did something. It's just like John would write in 1 John 3, 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Notice there in Acts 2, they saw others who had need and they said, we love our brethren just like God has loved us and we're going to do something about it. Love gives because it desires to give. It's not grudging or necessity. You know what 2 Corinthians 9, 7 said, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. You do it because you love them. You don't grumble about it. You do what is necessary. When Paul was going to Jerusalem to meet with the Jewish leaders there. And he was explaining that God had given them the uh, message to the Gentiles. And they expressed to Paul, we want you to remember the poor. He said the very thing that I also was eager to do. In other words, that was something I was interested in as well. And so, as the early church began, as the gospel went to Gentiles, there was also that healing of the breach as they gave to support one another. Now, I want to tell you, this is not like communism or socialism, where one is compelled to give, where the government or some other entity comes to you and says, okay, your fair share that you've got to give is this, and then we'll decide how it's distributed. That's not the way it was done. It was by the free will giving. But there was also unity because they accepted a singular message. It wasn't as if somehow they all just said, well, we're just going to get along. They had a unified message as well. In chapter 2, verse 42 of Acts, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking bread and prayers, what the apostles had taught. That means that the early church didn't have a doctrine over here and a doctrine over there. They followed what the apostles taught, realizing that they were the authorized representatives of the Lord. Unity brought about a sweet fellowship of sharing of meals together. In fact, that's one of the assignments of my lesson was to make sure that I emphasize the fact that the early church shared a meal together among themselves. You go to Acts chapter 2, verse 46, and it says, So continuing daily in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Now, how do I know this is not the Lord's Supper here? First of all, it's daily. 
Second of all, it is because it's taking place from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and singleness of heart. The early church was a group of people who not only enjoyed their fellowship together when they assembled as saints, but as they went from house to house, they enjoyed that kind of fellowship with one another. It makes me think of Lydia in Acts 16 and verse 15. It said that when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Lydia says, I want you to come to my house. I want you to eat food at my table. I want us to be friends. I want us to be brothers. You see that unity that took place. Romans chapter 12. Be kindly affectionate to one another in brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Now listen to verse 13. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. When you start thinking about that given to hospitality, does it remind you of what was said about those men qualified to elders? That they were to be given to hospitality. Now what I have tried to do is to give you a picture as best I can of that beginning of that early New Testament church. How that they focused themselves together because of their love for the Lord and their love for one another. That they not only enjoyed a unanimity of, of teaching, but they also enjoyed one another's company. Now let's talk a few minutes about some problems that arise from that. Sadly, Satan seeks to disrupt the sweet fellowship enjoyed by Christians. Satan is grieved when a person becomes a child of God. But then it becomes his mission to say, I've got to do something to separate and create problems and havoc within that church. He sows discord. And in fact, he does that through us, through us as individuals. Listen to Solomon in Proverbs chapter 6. Verses 12 through 14. A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes, shuffles with his feet. He points with his finger. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. He's devising this stuff. How am I going to be able to separate this one from that one? How am I going to be able to gain the advantage? And then in verses 16 through 19... These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven, are an abomination to him. He said, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. He just spoke about it and he says, that's what I hate is when people sow discord. Do you realize that when you and I take ourselves and we interject and we create problems in the Lord's church, we're not serving God, we're serving Satan. We're doing what he wants us to do. And Romans 16, 17, I urge you, brethren, note those who are causing offenses or divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine for which you have learned and avoid them. Somebody comes and they start sowing that discord and you don't have anything to do with them. 
Jesus taught in Mark 3, verses 24 and 25, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And I will tell you, if a church is divided against itself, that church cannot stand. The Lord's kingdom must be unified, and Satan doesn't want it. Well, how does Satan accomplish that? How does Satan get the church divided? Well, first of all, he entices us to commit sin, knowing that sin will separate us from God and sin will separate us from our brethren. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 said, God's ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. His hand is not shortened that it cannot say. But your sins and your iniquities have separated you from your God and he from his people. God is separated from us when we sin. But you know what else it does? It separates us from the other faithful brethren. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, I wrote unto you in my epistle not to keep company with fornicators, yet certainly I did not mean the fornicators of this world, the covetous, extortioners, idolaters, sins you would need to go out of the world. But I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who's a fornicator, a covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Oh, you mean then, if sin enters in the kingdom, we in the kingdom can't fellowship with, eat with, go along with? No, that's the way Satan divides us. He entices sin and then Sin divides us from one another. Second Thessalonians 3, 6, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to tradition which you've received from us. You find somebody who's creating the problems and you've got to withdraw from them. But you see, the way Satan makes sin palatable to us is by his introducing false teaching. Teaching things that people can continue in sin. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be so. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 3 through 5. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to the wholesome words, even to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, which accords with godliness... He's proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed over disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicion, useless wranglings of men of corrupt mind, destitute of truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. These people here who are sowing this discord by false teaching, he said, you've got to withdraw from them as well. He would tell us in Titus 3, verses 9 through 11, he said, Reject the device of man after a first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Wow. Problems come because the devil gets involved. What the devil wants to do is to segregate us as a body. In other words, he wants to divide some of us from the rest of us. And oh, is he so successful in that sometimes. In the early church, one of the things that Satan did was to divide by race. He knew it was going to be difficult to take the Jew and the Gentile who had never been able to get along real well because of the Jew's specialness. And to say, now you're going to put these two into one body and oh, you can't do that. 
You go to Acts chapter 11 and verse 3, and when Peter comes back to Jerusalem, they go after him and say, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. There are some men here that were converted at the household of Cornelius, but you better not eat with those brethren. Chapter 10, verse 28. Then he said, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company or go into one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Peter got it. You see, the problem is the devil would like for us to say, "Ah, we better not eat with black people. We better not eat with Asian people. We better not eat with whatever kind of people. But you see, that some of them had they, what they thought was a perfect solution. Acts 15 and verse 5, But some of the sect of the Pharisees believed, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Well, we can tell you what will work. Let's just make Jews out of them. That's not what the Holy Spirit said. What the devil would like is to segregate us by race. Galatians 2, 11 through 13. And you see, he was successful. Got even Peter and Barnabas to not eat with the Gentiles because others came and put pressure on them. In Ephesians 2, 14 and 15, he is our peace and he has made both one. He's broken down the middle wall of separation The Lord didn't intend there to be a Jewish church and a Gentile church. He created one body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek. But he doesn't just want to separate by race. He wants to separate by wealth as well. You know, in this life, there's some of us who will do better at times, and there's some of us who will do lesser at times. Some will be very successful at making a large substantial amount of money others though everything they may try just doesn't seem that it works and they must just struggle through this world in first corinthians chapter 11 we read in verse 20 therefore when you come together in one place it's not to eat the lord's supper oh yes they were partaking of something but it wasn't the lord's supper Verse 22, what, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? You see, what was taking place is some were coming and demonstrating their wealth in the way they participated in the Lord's Supper. Imagine on Sunday morning we come and assemble together here and instead of having a set of trays here on the table from which we serve the Lord's Supper... Everybody brings their own, and some people may bring in a beautiful gold thing uh, their communion. Others, because they have lesser amounts, may have to put it in a piece of plastic or maybe in a paper bag, and you'd say, well, that wouldn't be nice. That wouldn't be good. That's what was happening there. Many places, there's, a, there's an attempt to divide the church on the basis of age. We've got to have the old people together. We've got to have the young people together. We can't let the two of them get together. Others want to divide on the basis of education. Others on other things. Folks, that's of the devil. He wants to divide us and segregate us. And that happens when people start binding where God is not bound and loosing where God has not loosed. What that does is introduce another one 
that I was specifically asked to address, and that is saying that Christians cannot have fellowship meal where the saints meet and or the church cannot pay for that meal. I'm assuming that somewhere in that area that must be a specific problem. It was a problem in the area where I grew up in Alabama. There were people who would say that you cannot have a meal in the building where the saints assemble. There were others who would say that the church cannot in any fashion contribute to the providing of that meal. And if they do, they can't take it out of the church treasury. Let me point out some things. Number one, this is absurd. Because the churches met in the members' homes. Now, don't let this just slide over your head. If you can't eat where the members assemble, then what do you do when the saints meet in a home? Does that mean nobody else can ever eat in that house again? What happens when Monday morning comes along and somebody wants to eat breakfast? Oh, we can't eat here. This is where the saints assemble. You know, in Romans 16, verse 5, likewise, the church that meets in their house... Chapter 16, verse 19, the first Corinthians of the church greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church, which is in their house. Or Colossians 4, verse 15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, Nephthys and the church that is in his house. Philemon, verse 2, to the beloved Athean, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. I don't know how many more times I need to read it. Churches met in people's homes. These same churches that of which I speak have water fountains in the foyers and they have nurseries where mothers nurse or feed their babies. And many times these same preachers who say we won't eat in the building bring their lunch and eat in their offices on Monday and Tuesday. So you see the absurdity of that. You see the early church did have love feasts. Where they ate together. I've already talked to you about Acts 2 verse 46. You know, they broke bread from house to house. Jude verse 12 says, they are spots in your love feast. A love feast was what we call a fellowship meal. In fact, two weeks from this Saturday, we'll be gathering for one of those. And we'll be enjoying one another's company. At least I hope we do. And it is good for us as brothers and sisters to enjoy the interaction with one another, the fellowship with one another. Somebody says, but now no money can come from the Lord's treasury to pay for feeding people. I'd like for you to look at biblical examples with me. In John chapter 4 verse 8, For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. You might say, well, that means they're all going to buy it for themselves. Somebody's got to buy a meal for Jesus. But when you go to John chapter 13, and they're assembled there for the Passover meal. That's already been provided. Jesus tells Jesus that whatever he's about to do, to do it quickly, he's going to depart from the gathering there in that upper room. John records, for some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast. 
or that he should give something to the poor. I think that's significant. Judas was the treasurer. And the Lord told Judas, and the disciples didn't think it uncommon to say, go buy something for the feast. In Mark chapter 14, or Matthew chapter 14, and when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes into the villages that they may go to the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. You know how many folks are there? 5,000. All right. Tony, there's 5,000 people outside. You give them something to eat. I'm sorry. I don't believe I've got that much in my back pocket. But Judas could be able to go into the treasury and be able to provide food. Of course, the Lord went on to divide the loaves and the fishes. But the fact that there was the purchase of food from that treasury. Now, someone says, well, does that make good sense? It's possibly the most expedient method. Because it would not embarrass those who had less they could not bring to a meal or even those who would have difficulty hosting people in their home. You know, I mentioned earlier, the Lord's Supper we have before us, we have trays, and it's the same for everyone, regardless of how wealthy or poor you are. We have a fellowship meal that shouldn't be so that those who are more wealthy have a much nicer meal than those who have less, but that we share together. I think it's wonderful when we have potluck meals. Everybody brings something and we share. But the idea is that we do share with one another. We have to learn not to go beyond what is written and all speak the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says to that he and Apollos had transferred those things to themselves that they might learn in them not to use the American Standard Reading, go beyond those things that are written and in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, that you all speak the same thing. There be no divisions among you, but you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. The only way we can do that is if you and I will only say what God says, not to add any more to it, nor to take anything away from it. I didn't go 45 minutes, but I went a little longer than I normally do. There's a great difference between what the Lord wants for this church and what the devil wants. What the devil wants is to destroy. The thief does not come except but to kill and to destroy. Still kill and destroy. And I've come that they may have life and may have it more abundantly. The Lord wants his church to succeed. That early church that began in Acts 2, he wants it to thrive and flourish even to today. Satan wants it to stop. He wants us to die. And I refuse to give in to him. In fact, we must resist the Satan's efforts. James 4, verse 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him steadfast in the faith. We've got to tell the devil no. But I couldn't end without using one verse back from Acts 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. That's where I want to end the lesson tonight. You too can be a member of that great body, the church, the one that was 
eagerly anticipated you can be a New Testament Christian if you do what they did. They believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. They repented of their sins, confessed that faith, and then were baptized. If you're here tonight and willing to do that, everything is ready. The baptistry behind me is filled. We have garments prepared. We'd love to have a new brother or sister in Christ tonight. If you're a Christian and you've been serving Satan rather than serving God, it's time for you to repent of that and come back and be faithful. We're going to sing the song, Are You Washed? And if you are subject to the Lord's invitation, would you come as we stand and sing?